Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. The Branch Davidians, the Ant Hill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual harassment and the sexual assault of a minor. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Late one evening in 1942, a police officer, we'll call Detective Brown, drove to the Los Angeles suburb of Pasadena. He was there to investigate a report about a wild party on Millionaire's Row. As the name implied, it was a respectable, high-end neighborhood. It didn't seem like the type of place where women jumped through fire and prayed to occult deities late into the night. And yet the locals claimed that was exactly what was happening at 1003 South Orange Grove Boulevard. Detective Brown didn't take the allegations seriously, but he had to question the residents at least. When he arrived, he knocked on the door. A young man in his late 20s with close-cropped dark hair and a studious expression answered. He didn't look like a sorcerer. Detective Brown must have felt embarrassed as he explained he was there to investigate a potential black magic ritual. The man identified himself as Jack Parsons, a high-ranking scientist who worked for the U.S. government. He didn't have time for silly allegations. Satisfied with that explanation, the officer returned to his beat while Parsons went back into his house. It was packed with guests, including a nude pregnant woman who leapt back and forth over a bonfire. It was hard to believe, but the reports were pretty much true. Rocket scientist and founding member of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Jack Parsons, was hosting a mysterious magical ritual for the Ordo Templi Orientis. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we're continuing our exploration into the Ordo Templi Orientis and one of its most influential members, Jack Parsons. He changed the way the world understood rocketry. On the side, he balanced his cutting-edge science experiments with sex scandals and occultism. Next week, we'll wrap up our OTO discussion by taking a look at the Order's decline. We'll follow Parsons' attempts to fulfill one of Aleister Crowley's apocalyptic prophecies, and we'll meet the woman Parsons believed was a goddess in the flesh. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. In their book, Sex and Rockets, authors John Carter and Robert Anton Wilson made an amusing discovery. On October 2, 1914, the world was supposed to end, at least according to Charles Taze Russell, the man who founded the Jehovah's Witnesses. Coincidentally, Marvel Whitehead Parsons, or Jack as he'd later be known, was born that same day. Parsons grew up in Pasadena's Millionaire's Row an upscale neighborhood populated by some of Southern California's wealthiest residents. But not everything about his childhood was so idyllic. See, before Parsons was even born, his father, Marvel Parsons Sr., cheated on his wife. His affair went on during and after his wife's pregnancy, and according to author George Pendle, the other woman may have been a sex worker. When Parsons' mother learned of his infidelity, she kicked Marvel out of the house. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In 2013, sociologists Sarah McClanahan, Laura Tack, and Daniel Schneider reviewed studies on adolescents who grew up without father figures. They found these young people are more likely to engage in risky behavior, less likely to finish high school or pursue higher education, and may sometimes have poorer mental health as adults. It's possible this was due to the stress and emotional turmoil that comes from growing up without a father's support. After Parsons' parents separated, his mother moved in with her parents, and so Parsons' grandfather became the only father figure in his life. Yet without Parsons' birth father in the picture, it seemed he developed a healthy skepticism of authority and of other people. He struggled to connect with his peers. Since he didn't have much of a social life, he had to find other ways to keep himself occupied. He loved to read. As a boy, he devoured classical mythologies, fantasy novels, and pulp sci-fi magazines like Amazing Stories. At the time, science fiction was still emerging as a popular genre. But Parsons adored early sci-fi pioneers like Jules Verne, author of From the Earth to the Moon. In that book, a group of soldiers invents a rocket-powered vehicle that sends them into space. Today, that may not sound especially fantastical, but during Parsons' childhood, many scientists believed rocket propulsion into outer space was impossible. Those sorts of vehicles belonged in children's books, not in real labs or factories. Nevertheless, From the Earth to the Moon sparked Parsons' imagination. He became obsessed with rockets. 
He often bought firecrackers, put an empty tin can on top of them, and then lit the fuse. When the firecracker ignited, it would launch the can into the air. Over time, his experiments became bolder. By the time he was a teen, Parsons started breaking the fireworks open to scrape out the gunpowder and other accelerants. Then he'd load the fuel into a wooden or paper tube, sealing it with glue. This way he could control how much gunpowder he used, how densely it was compressed, and the weight of the rocket. Parsons may not have realized it yet, but he was teaching himself engineering. But he was learning by trial and error, and his experiments didn't always work out. Some misfires exploded, leaving ugly pockmarks in the backyard. A few times, Parsons may have narrowly escaped serious injury, but none of it discouraged him. He wanted to know everything he could about rockets. Unfortunately, his growing fascination didn't always translate into good grades. Parsons struggled in school. Biographer George Pendle believes he may have had dyslexia. Although Parsons loved to read, he often misspelled words and avoided cursive in his handwritten notes. Parsons never connected with his classwork and eventually transferred to an expensive private institution that specialized in helping wealthy dropouts complete their high school educations. In spite of his rocky high school experience, he did enroll in college, but he didn't graduate. At that point, Parsons turned his attention from schooling to romance. In 1935, Parsons married his girlfriend, Helen Northrup, and bought a house. More importantly, he continued building homemade rockets, and they were brilliant. Even with no university degree, Parsons found a place to continue his experiments at the prestigious California Institute of Technology. In his free time, when he wasn't working at the Halifax Powder Company making explosives, he was inside one of the top schools in the world in 1935 when he was 20 years old. He worked with two other young scientists out of the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory, also known as GALSIT, where he finally got to pursue his passion. Parsons and his team were hands-on. They mixed accelerants in their labs, built prototype vehicles, and launched rockets into the air. When they miscalculated, their experiments often ended explosively. Many prototypes blew up before takeoff. Once in 1937, Parsons and his colleagues accidentally flooded the Galsit labs with caustic gas. The death-defying disasters were so frequent that Parsons and his co-workers earned a nickname, the Suicide Squad. It became clear that it wasn't practical for the team to keep testing rockets on Caltech's crowded campus in Pasadena. There was too much risk. A student or faculty member might get hurt. So the Suicide Squad started running drills in Arroyo Seco a desolate stretch of watershed on the outskirts of Pasadena, where they had made some of their earliest experiments. There, they could keep up their studies without endangering anyone else. Now, Parsons' team had a remote testing range and passion, but they still needed funding. In 1939, one of Parsons' colleagues gave a presentation to the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Army Air Corps Research. The NAS financed scientific studies for the military. The presenter spoke about the Suicide Squad's tests, but he edited a few key details. He never mentioned they worked with rockets. To sound more legitimate, he said they were experimenting on jets. NAS was impressed with the presentation, deceptive as it may have been. They awarded Parsons' team a grant so they could develop jet-powered, or more accurately, rocket-powered aircrafts. That made 25-year-old Jack Parsons a full-time employed rocket scientist. 
But the grant money didn't go as far as Parsons may have hoped. During the Suicide Squad's more incendiary experiments, they damaged some of the buildings at Galsit. They had to pay for repairs to some equipment. But a few months later, with fears of World War II on the horizon, they were given a larger grant from the NAS. The new facility would later come to be known as the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL. The name was meant to be unassuming. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory was studying jet propulsion explicitly for rockets. But like the presenter who won the NAS grant, the Suicide Squad worried they would look ridiculous if people knew rockets were what they were really researching. Amidst these changes, Parsons was able to quit his job and work on rockets full-time. But something else had also changed in Parsons' life. In 1939, between building prototypes and poring over blueprints, he came across a book that changed the course of his life. It wasn't an engineering manual or a rocketry guide. It was Conks on Pax by Aleister Crowley, the leader of Ordo Templi Orientis. As we discussed last time, Crowley wrote extensively about his philosophy of Thelema, the belief that every person should follow their own will. Thelema was a core principle in the OTO, along with mysticism and sex magic. You'd think Parsons would have dismissed Crowley's claims out of hand. He was a scientist. He had to know magic was illogical. But Parsons was used to out-of-the-box thinking. He'd already dedicated himself to rocketry, hoping to design rockets that could reach outer space. In his youth, more serious-minded scientists thought the idea was pure science fiction. In the 2014 issue of Applied Cognitive Psychology, researchers Emilio Lobato, Jorge Mendoza, Valerie Sims, and Matthew Chin analyzed people who believed in things like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, alien abductions, good luck charms, and various conspiracy theories. They found that people who accepted one of these phenomena as real were more likely to believe in others, too. That included ideas that were completely unrelated to one another. This suggests people who adhere to one kind of unwarranted belief may be more susceptible to other narratives that are irrational, unscientific, or at the very least unsupported by the evidence. That said, a strange idea can still be true, even if experts dismiss it at first. Though the scientists of Parsons' youth believed rockets could never reach outer space, we know today they were wrong. Parsons' open mind helped him make breakthroughs a traditional scientist never could have. Likewise, when Parsons read the magical ideas in Conks on Pax, he took it seriously. He bought every Aleister Crowley book he could get his hands on and started attending OTO ceremonies. He shared his findings with his wife, Helen. After a year of spiritual exploration with the Order, on February 15, 1941, both were formally initiated into the Ordo Templi Orientis. We don't know much about what their initiation ceremony looked like, but we can assume Parsons and Helen participated in a traditional ritual at the local lodge. At that time, Parsons selected a motto that would guide his study. The Lima Obtentum Protidero Amoris Nuptiae. It's a poorly translated Latin phrase that was supposed to mean the establishment of Thelema through the rituals of love. It also stood out as the acronym T-O-P-A-N, which spelled out Tupan, the goat-headed god of ancient Greece, which Parsons felt a kinship with. But imprecise Latin wasn't Parsons' only problem. While the order promised him mystical secrets, it was about to devastate his personal life. Coming up... The OTO impacts Parsons' marriage. 
Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. On behalf of Parcast, I'd like to thank you for your continued support. Your loyalty has allowed us to keep expanding even beyond podcasts. That's why I'm so thrilled to share some special news with you all, something we've never done before and made possible only because of you. On July 12th, we're releasing our first book titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. Those of you who've been with Parcast since the beginning know that it's a labor of love for us to bring you these powerful stories. As long as you keep listening, we keep creating. So with the benefit of years of research and insights, we've put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. You won't want to miss this book. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. Thank you again for listening. We can't wait for you to dive in. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. In 1941, 26-year-old Jack Parsons was straddling two worlds. He was a researcher on the cutting edge of rocket science. Behind closed doors, he was also a budding mystic who'd just been initiated into the OTO. Parsons was excited to learn about magic, but he was even more enthusiastic to join a community. He attended meetings, parties, and aggressively recruited new members. More importantly, the formerly solitary young man found a father figure in his mentor, Wilfred Talbot Smith. Smith studied directly under Crowley and served as his official representative in Southern California. But Parsons didn't need to rely on Smith to know what Crowley was thinking. He also wrote directly to the London-based leader, personally expressing his enthusiasm. Through their correspondence, Crowley became a second spiritual guide for the rocket scientist. Eventually, he started preparing Parsons to take over the Los Angeles chapter of the OTO, known as the Agape Lodge. Parsons was an eager student. He learned everything he could from Crowley and Smith it incorporated Thelemic teachings into his relationship with his wife, Helen. Crowley wrote that traditional marriage was a detestable institution and monogamy was foolish. So, presumably in an effort to align their lifestyle with OTO teachings, the Parsonses had an open marriage. In this episode, we're using the term open marriage to refer to consensual, non-monogamous relationships. An open relationship is not the same as cheating because both people consent to sexual or romantic encounters with others. Ronald Raggi, associate professor of psychology at the University of Rochester, found people in certain kinds of open partnerships were just as satisfied as those in monogamous relationships. But this was only true of open relationships with very clear communication. Otherwise, a partner may feel betrayal or jealousy if they believe they're being lied to or if their boundaries aren't respected. And it seems the Parsonses weren't great at navigating the terms of their new arrangement. In June 1941, Helen went on vacation, leaving Parsons at home. While she was gone, her younger sister, 17-year-old Betty, started sleeping with 26-year-old Parsons. 
Soon afterward, Betty moved in permanently. When Helen came home, she found her sister in her clothing, sleeping with her husband, and seemingly usurping her role in the household. Shortly afterward, Helen dipped her toes into non-monogamy by having sex with Parsons' personal mentor, Wilfred Smith. It wasn't a one-time hookup. They slept together regularly, all while Parsons continued his sexual relationship with Betty. Needless to say, the spouses apparently struggled with enforcing reasonable boundaries, and that wasn't the only way the Order's philosophies hurt them. The OTO also taught couples should be ruthlessly honest with one another. That meant Parsons didn't hold back from telling Helen that he found her younger sister more sexually preferable. While many experts believe honesty is important in healthy relationships, so-called white lies can also help. In an interview, clinical psychologist Barbara Greenberg noted minor deceptions can spare people from unnecessary emotional harm. She observed, most people that I've come across tell these little white lies because they understand 100% honesty all of the time is not beneficial. Parsons' ruthless barbs and his affair with Betty left his marriage in shambles. But the personal drama didn't inhibit his professional growth. He was making massive breakthroughs at work. He was designing new kinds of rocket fuel for the U.S. military. It took him 27 tries to get the recipe right, but once he worked it out, Parsons was ready to make history. In the summer of 1941, the Suicide Squad were ready to prove their rockets were more than a theory. They wanted to give the Air Force, Caltech, and the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics a demonstration on the Arroyo Seco. A pilot named Homer Boucher planned to fly a small airplane with rockets strapped to its wings. If the team was successful, the vessel would soar through the sky, powered by rocketry. Success was not guaranteed. The lab tests only suggested it should work. But by now, everyone knew how temperamental rockets could be. There was always a chance they could explode on takeoff and injure or even kill Boucher. The week before the demonstration, the team conducted a trial run. They fueled up the rockets at the Galset facilities, then hauled them out to the Arroyo. Since it was just a test, they kept the airplane empty on their makeshift runway, and Boucher watched it take off from a distance. They ignited the fuel and... The vehicle ripped itself apart in a fiery explosion. A member of the Suicide Squad later said the failed test was like watching a 4th of July display. It was discouraging to say the least, and the Suicide Squad didn't know why their test failed. They still hadn't figured it out by August 6th, when the Suicide Squad launched several empty vehicles. Luckily, the first few went off without a hitch. 17 rockets took off and landed as planned. Still, they wanted to keep Boucher as safe as possible while he was in the experimental vehicle. When it was his time to fly, Parsons' team removed all but two of the rockets from his plane. However, when he conducted a test flight, one erupted in midair. Boucher was an experienced pilot, and he managed to bring his vehicle in safely. Nobody was seriously hurt in the blast, but it still wasn't the kind of impression the Suicide Squad wanted to make. By the time Boucher landed, it was getting late. The team told the Air Force they were breaking for the night, but they'd continue the test later. The officials agreed and everyone went home to rest. Well, everyone but one person. Parsons still wanted to solve the mystery of the exploding rockets. All his research told him they should work. Back at home, he stayed up late into the night, examining every data point to figure out what was making his rockets fail. Finally, during another test at the Arroyo, Parsons identified his mistake. 
He was making his fuel the day before the test, then delivering it. But when it sat overnight, the substance became unstable because it cooled down and then reheated the next day. If he wanted his rockets to work, he'd have to fuel up right before takeoff. He tested his theory on August 12th. That morning, well before sunrise, he and the rest of the suicide squad prepped the plane. They slowly, methodically packed the fuel into four rockets, two for each wing. The process took a full 45 minutes. By the time they were ready for takeoff, the sun had already risen and the Air Force observers had arrived. Finally, Boucher climbed into the cockpit and fired up the engines. He sped down the runway, pulled up the throttle, and took off. The plane seemed to leap off the ground, ascending at a sharp angle. None of the observers had ever seen an aircraft rise so high or so quickly. The rockets blasted it through the sky. Boucher landed without incident. He even took off and flew around another time to prove the experiment could be repeated. When the Suicide Squad timed his flights, they found he was traveling faster than any plane ever had before. On top of that, his takeoffs and landings were more efficient. In other words, Parsons' tests were a resounding success. He didn't just show a rocket-powered airplane was possible on paper. He proved it. His team repeated the flight several times in the next two weeks without a single explosion. It was a triumph of engineering. But in some ways, Parsons' work seemed more mystical than scientific. During many test launches, he chanted an Aleister Crowley poem called Hymn to Pan. The triumphant song included lines like, Eo Pan, Eo Pan, devil or God, to me, to me, my man, my man, come with trumpets sounding shrill over the hill. Parsons' colleagues didn't know what to make of the recitation and his other eccentricities were starting to cross the line, too. He wasn't always discreet about his extramarital relationships. On several occasions, he called his co-workers to invite them to wild parties at the OTO headquarters. Rumors flew around Caltech, suggesting Parsons was part of a mythic love cult. Some of his colleagues complained to officials about Parsons' unscholarly behavior. It was unbecoming of a rocket scientist to also believe in the occult. Luckily for Parsons, his superiors didn't take the complaint seriously, at least not then. Nobody wanted to restrict the genius who was actually getting them results. But Parsons' life was clearly out of balance. His marriage was crumbling. His beliefs were garnering unwanted attention. And soon, the FBI would start to be interested in the OTO. Coming up, the order gets into legal trouble. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. 
Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now back to the story. In 1941, 26-year-old rocket scientist Jack Parsons and his team built a working rocket-powered plane. Prior to that point, many researchers had assumed the feat was impossible. It was a truly life-changing discovery. Parsons' career was rocketing toward the stars, but he was in danger of blowing everything apart. The following summer, Parsons and his wife, Helen, pooled their funds. They bought a house on Pasadena's Millionaire's Row that, ironically, had been built for one of the founders of Caltech. The mansion at 1003 South Orange Grove Boulevard had a massive grand hall, a porch, a cellar large enough to fit 50 people comfortably, six large bedrooms on the second floor, and five smaller ones on the third. But Parsons wasn't just looking for a spacious home. The order's leaders gave him permission to make his house the new headquarters for the Southern California chapter of the OTO, the Agape Lodge. When he moved in, other OTO members christened the space with pictures of Aleister Crowley, magical artifacts, and a verbal declaration, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Parsons converted the master bedroom into a private temple. The other rooms went to OTO members or became rentals. Most importantly, he wanted the Agape Lodge to be a hub for American OTO practitioners. He hoped that if he could provide an inexpensive place for mystics to live, they'd congregate in Pasadena. According to a former resident, Parsons later advertised his home as a destination for bohemians, artists, musicians, atheists, anarchists, or other exotic types. For all his professional success, at a certain point, Parsons couldn't afford the house all on his own. He needed paying tenants. So the house at 1003 Orange Grove Avenue became the trendiest destination for mystics, creators, and other nonconformists. Residents jokingly referred to the mansion as the Parsonage, and while some participated in Parsons' OTO rituals, others fueled his curiosity about literature and science. As a child, Parsons read novels by Jules Verne and pulp author Jack Williamson. Now, he casually rubbed elbows with greats like Robert A. Heinlein. Today, Heinlein may be most famous for his novel, Stranger in a Strange Land. It tells the story of a man who's raised by Martians, then returns to the Earth to share their alien culture and philosophy with humanity. Heinlein's Martian society bore a striking resemblance to the OTO, and the themes of mysticism and free love in Stranger in a Strange Land went on to influence the hippie movement, possibly thanks to Parsons' parties. Besides Heinlein, Parsons also schmoozed with pulp master A.E. Van Vogt and may have also met H.P. Lovecraft's friend and sometime co-author E. Hoffman Price. Along with them, Parsons still considered Wilfred Smith a mentor, even as Smith continued to sleep with Parsons' wife. But Parsons still greatly admired Aleister Crowley from afar. He longed to meet the extraordinary mystic in person. So, soon after the Agape Lodge was founded, members raised funds to bring him to Pasadena. They even handled Crowley's immigration paperwork for him. Crowley was grateful for their assistance, in part because he was struggling financially. He couldn't support himself on the proceeds from his writing anymore. 
The Agape Lodge offered an escape from rundown British tenements and aggressive landlords. He didn't just plan to visit California, he wanted to move there permanently. But his timing couldn't have been worse. Crowley planned his move in 1941. On December 7th, the Japanese military attacked Pearl Harbor and the United States formally entered World War II. It wasn't exactly a great time for intercontinental travel. Even worse, soon afterward, 66-year-old Crowley became ill. By the time he recovered, he ran into problems with his visa, then realized he couldn't afford the move at all anymore. Crowley could only advise 27-year-old Parsons from afar, sending him warm encouragement and advice in their frequent letters. And Parsons needed the support, because some people weren't happy with the bohemian vibe at the Parsonage. In late 1942, an anonymous whistleblower calling themselves a real soldier wrote a letter to the Pasadena Police Department. In it, they detailed several allegations against the Agape Lodge. According to the sender, Parsons was hosting a black magic cult and at least one enemy alien. The letter complained of scandalous sex and Crowleyism. The charges were so concerning that the FBI launched their own investigation. When agents showed up at his front door, Parsons gave them a tour, downplaying the allegations and spinning the OTO's ethos in the best possible light. His explanations must have been convincing because the FBI didn't press any charges. They still kept the file on him open, though, just in case. As far as we know, Parsons never learned who a real soldier was. Several OTO members suspected the letter writer was a bitter former initiate. But the person could also have been a neighbor, frustrated at the wild parties on the otherwise quiet Millionaire's Row. Or it could have been a prankster. After all, this was far from the only time authorities were called to the parsonage. That same year, police responded to reports about a black magic ritual where pregnant women had to jump through a fire. In a separate complaint, a 16-year-old boy said the OTO sexually assaulted him during a magical ritual. It's unclear how vigorously the police investigated that last claim, but ultimately they didn't find any evidence to support the allegations. It probably helped that Parsons was a well-respected scientist. He didn't seem like the sort of person who would host an occult gathering. But slowly, his facade was crumbling around him. At 27, Parsons continued blending science and magic in a way that sometimes left his colleagues uncomfortable. Their concerns peaked in 1942, when the military asked him to create a new kind of rocket fuel, and he discovered the perfect combination. The new compound solved several problems. First, accelerants needed to be explosive. That blast was what powered each craft. But Parsons didn't want them to be so volatile that they blew up at the wrong time. So he designed one that was stable at rest, yet still effective when in use. That meant it needed to be a solid fuel. Parsons' fuel was also quick and easy to pour into a unit and could be stored for long periods of time. And that's exactly what he found with a mixture he called Galsit 53. As for how he came up with the recipe, stories vary, but some Suicide Squad members claimed it came to him in a divine revelation. Others believe Parsons drew inspiration from ancient legend. Millennia-old stories discuss a substance known as Greek fire, a flammable liquid weapon from the 5th century that, once lit, could almost never be put out. Some claim Parsons was trying to recreate Greek fire when he developed his new rocket fuel. However he came up with the recipe, it worked. Parsons' new accelerant was more powerful and effective than any other he'd developed. But that wasn't the only way Parsons' beliefs were hurting his reputation. 
He frequently attended rowdy OTO parties that lasted well into the night. Occasionally, he invited his co-workers to gatherings where his housemates stripped naked and danced outdoors. In the mornings after, he often showed up for work exhausted, unbathed, and smelly. According to the book Sex and Rockets, The Occult World of Jack Parsons, he also slept with several female co-workers, including his subordinates. Some colleagues complained about 29-year-old Parsons' unprofessional behavior. It seems his supervisors didn't really care, though. Once again, Parsons' reputation as a genius likely shielded him from the worst criticism. In any case, Parsons tried to get his act together. He started showing up for work looking polished and improved his hygiene. The professional changes may have inspired him to turn a more critical eye on his home life, too. In 1945, Parsons finally filed for divorce from Helen. Helen had given birth to Wilfred Smith's child two years earlier, so the couple had been effectively separated for a while. But when Smith, Helen, and their child returned, Parsons thought it was time to formally end the marriage. Still, he let Helen and Smith stay on his property, and he continued his mentee relationship with Smith. It seemed like Parsons was shockingly chill about Helen and Smith's relationship. But several people noticed he did a good job of talking about how he wasn't the possessive type, while privately he may have been deeply bothered by his ex-wife's other partner. And these emotions reared their heads again when his new girlfriend Betty agreed to non-monogamy. It's possible Parsons was repressing his own jealousy. Emotional repression occurs when people try to bury or ignore emotions they consider negative. In Parsons' case, he likely wanted to be the perfect OTO practitioner, so he needed to believe he was comfortable with non-monogamy, regardless of how he really felt. This kind of denial comes at a cost, however. Researchers Janish Patel and Pritesh Patel wrote about the negative effects of emotional repression in the 2019 issue of the International Journal of Psychotherapy Practice and Research. They found people who ignore their negative feelings are more likely to have more stress and experience symptoms of depression. They may even get sick more often because their immune systems are weaker. Even Crowley could tell that Parsons needed to handle his jealousy differently based on their letters. He warned him to stay away from Smith. Instead, Crowley tried to coax Parsons to visit him in Europe, but it wasn't meant to be. Parsons simply had too many commitments in Pasadena. He should have been more careful about who he trusted. The greatest threat to the rocket scientist wasn't Wilfred Smith. It was a new visitor to the Parsonage. Earlier, we mentioned how Parsons befriended and partied with several literary greats. Through a mutual artist friend, he met an up-and-coming sci-fi writer who was interested in learning more about the Agape Lodge. The author in question needed a safe harbor. He was a Navy lieutenant who was reportedly on leave in the summer of 1945 and needed a place to stay. Under these circumstances, the author showed up at Jack Parsons' door, eager to meet another science fiction enthusiast. And Parsons befriended the potential initiate right away. But he never expected the newcomer to eventually contribute to the destruction of the Parsonage and destabilize the Agape Lodge. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with Part 3 on the decline of the OTO. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. 
Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Cults was written by Angela Jorgensen, edited by Robert Tyler Walker and Terrell Wells, with fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners, it's Vanessa. Exciting news, ParCast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.